What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. New Jersey is rolling back rights for trans prisoners, making it even more difficult for them to be incarcerated at institutions that align with their gender identity. We are joined this morning by Adam Rhodes, a queer first-generation Cuban-American journalist whose journalism focuses on public policy, the justice system, and our nation's most vulnerable people. His latest piece for the appeal is called New Jersey Rolls Back Protections for Trans Prisoners. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Absolutely. All right. Um, we're going to walk through your article, uh, yeah. you know, uh, one section at a time. And I want to start with um, what what was the policy before this rollback, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the incident. What was the policy before this rollback and how, how did that come into place? Mm-hmm. So the, the policy before this rollback was, um, I believe it was uh, from July 2022, or I might have that date a little uh, incorrect, but it was essentially a previous policy that it was a result of a settlement agreement between the ACLU and New Jersey prison officials that created um, what was called a uh, presumptive placement for trans people incarcerated in New Jersey, which essentially allowed, um, gave uh, much more leeway to trans prisoners who wanted to be housed in facilities that aligned with their gender identity. It created an avenue for uh, prison officials to um, like have interviews and committee meetings and everything with uh, trans prisoners to find the safest place to house them. And this role, this uh, new policy that rolled back that policy essentially uh, weakened that presumptive placement and created um, what the department called a rebuttable presumption, which is essentially that um, trans people's uh, housing preferences that align with their gender identity can be easily overrided by the department now. Adam, but before we get into to the the incident that they're using to justify mm-hmm. uh, the, the rollback, I, I think it's important to just sort of paint a picture, like policy or no policy, mm-hmm. for life for folks, life for trans folks inside of um, prisons, jails, mm-hmm. right? Is 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 a dangerous, um, unsafe? Um, I mean, it is for all prisoners, but talk about mm-hmm. specifically. Um, what those conditions are like for trans folks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like you said, prisons and jails are unsafe for anybody. It's, you know, uh, part of their design. It's part of the cruelty of the system. But for trans people, those dangers are compounded and complicated um, by, you know, their identities and their personhood. An NBC News article from 2020 found that trans people at the time were almost never uh, assigned in housing facilities that match their gender identity. Um, and, you know, for non-trans people, that doesn't that may not sound uh, very egregious or very dangerous. But for trans people, that opens them up to significant and egregious levels of verbal and physical assault and sexual assault, um, both from fellow prisoners and staff as well. And that's something that we've seen. Um, that's something that's happened at Edna Mahan, which is where the uh, trans trans prisoner at the heart of my story was uh, housed until she was moved to a men's facility. So... Um, the correction, the prison and jail system, uh, again, like you said, is uh, dangerous and harmful to the people um, within the system. But for trans people, it's especially dangerous. 
And there's just one more piece of this thread I want to tug on um, before we get back to the heart of your story. Mm. And, and, and that is um, one of the, the tools that the state uses, right? And, and, and mm -hmm. they say it's to protect um, trans folks is, is to isolate them, to put them in solitary confinement. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this oftentimes will, um, like you said, it's uh, oftentimes billed as like a safety issue or like an effort to protect uh, the trans prisoners. But trans people suffer under solitary confinement conditions exponentially more than uh, general population, especially if prison officials don't have a policy with which uh, to, or to point to to house trans people in facilities that match their identities, usually um, prison officials will just put trans people in like solitary confinement and say like this is the only place we can house them safely, uh, you know, without um, or just outright ignoring the um, dire mental health consequences that come with being severely isolated in facilities like that. Yeah, and, and I just, you know, I always say it when I talk about solitary confinement inside of American concentration camps, you know, even the United Nations. Uh, acknowledges mm -hmm. that that is a form of torture. Mm -hmm. Okay, Adam, talk to us about, is it Demi or Demi? I want to make sure I'm saying her it's name. It's Demi. Demi. Okay, talk mm -hmm. to us about Demi Minor. Who is she and what happened? Yeah, Demi Minor is a, uh, I think she's turning 28 soon, a 28 trans woman, or 28-year-old trans woman um, incarcerated in New Jersey. Um, in about April of last year, some uh, reporters... Uh, got the information that two women at the New Jersey's only women's prison uh, had become pregnant by Demi. The relationships uh, were consensual, both the Department of Corrections and Demi have said that the relationships were consensual. Um, but as a result, it created like this media firestorm that I think got to the heart of a lot of issues surrounding trans people in prison. But it, the coverage was on. Uh, you know, unfortunately, incredibly transphobic, incredibly harmful to Demi, um, painting her as an aggressor and uh, a threat to the safety of cisgender women in the prison. And after that media firestorm, um, New Jersey prison officials publicly said that they were going to revisit the trans-affirming housing policy. And I believe about two months after the incident as well, Demi was transferred to a men's prison. And what has Demi's experience been since she was transferred to the men's well, prison? It's uh, it's frankly been indescribably cruel. She has suffered, um, you know, she's isolated from the general population. She's in what's called a vulnerable housing unit. Um, but, you know, it's the standard isolation. It's essentially, you know, solitary by any other name. Um, she has uh, harmed herself in an effort to uh, finally live or finally physically be in the um, body that she wants. She, she and other trans people suffer under exorbitant delays in gender-affirming surgeries provided by prisons and jails. So, you know, she is suffering from gender dysphoria and all of the things that gender-affirming care alleviates. Um, and she's also housed in a you know, in that vulnerable housing unit, she's housed with uh, really violent people, people who harass her, people who abuse her. So she has faced almost unrelenting trauma after being after being transferred. And yet she she's suing the state. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, she filed a lawsuit in September of last year um, over her move to the men's prison, over the delays in providing her gender-affirming care and just the myriad ways that she has been abused behind bars. 
where is that that lawsuit in in terms of its its, its process, its journey through the court system? <laughs> You know. So she, uh, pretty soon after she filed the lawsuit, I believe in November, she filed a motion for injunctive relief seeking uh, transfer out of the men's prison and um, essentially immediate gender affirming care provided. She is still incarcerated in the men's prison, unfortunately, but she has been scheduled for gender affirming surgery. So there is some progress, thankfully. I learned something new in your article and um, that I didn't know uh, existed and that there are actually federal guidelines that are supposed mm-hmm. to, in theory, um, uh, I can't use the word protect. Uh, there are federal guidelines around how trans folks um, yeah. can and should be treated inside of prisons. I guess is the, the best way to put it. Can you talk about yeah. PREA or PREA on what those guidelines are? Yeah, so the uh, Prison Rape Elimination Act, um, part of uh, the act was aimed at, you know, increasing the safety um, as much as, you know, possible in prisons and jails. Um, The treatment of uh, trans and other gender expansive uh, incarcerated people. So uh, particularly PREA requires prison officials to interview uh, trans people behind bars and, you know, just to, number one, to understand their identity and also to understand how to most safely house them. Um, but, you know, as the article, particularly the NBC News article that I cite in my article, points out that uh, Pri is still pretty toothless when it comes to trans people and trans people still suffer under, you know, like of all of the things that Demi is suffering under, the lack of gender affirming care, the inadequate housing, the oftentimes dangerous housing situations. Right, and the other thing that you you point um, out in your article is that even being housed in a women's prison isn't enough, um, as you said, Mm -hmm. to guarantee safety. Can you talk about the Edmund Mond Correctional Facility um, where she was and and the allegations of abuse um, that are are there outside of even Demi Minor's experience? Absolutely. Um, You know, Edna Mahan, the correctional facility where Demi was housed, has faced significant and longstanding allegations of physical and sexual abuse by prison officials. Uh, I think the incident that really brought this to the fore was um, a night of cell extractions at the facility, you know, like uh, the prison officials going into cells and forcibly removing uh, people Uh, from their cells, there were reports of beatings, of assaults, of just like wanton and rampant violence at this facility on the part of prison officials. Um, And then, you know, like after that uh, horrifying incident occurred, there were following incidents of violence. So irrespective of uh, someone's identity in a Mahan prison, whether they're cisgender or transgender or whatever, prison officials at the facility have a history of just like outright attacking and abusing prisoners. Um, I believe about 14 correctional uh, officials were charged as a result of the violence that happened at Ed Mahan, and 30, uh, at least 30 officers were also um, fired or suspended. I mean, and that that should say something. That should communicate something to the public about how severe these mm-hmm. attacks were, because the 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 state, the system doesn't eat its own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And, unless it absolutely has to. Um, mm-hmm. Adam, but before you, um, before I let you go, I I do want to just dip back real quick to talk yeah. about the role of mainstream media mm-hmm. that 
A, the role that it played in creating a, a, a frenzy or, or, or providing mm-hmm. a pathway, right, for yeah. there to be a frenzy around um, the pregnancies of these two women. Mm-hmm. But, but I also want, right, there's this, there's this illusion that what happens on this side of the wall doesn't impact that side of the wall and vice mm-hmm. versa. That kind of reporting, that kind of transphobic reporting, can you talk about the way it increases the unsafe conditions for our trans relatives in the streets? Absolutely. You know, these, the journalism, the transphobic, um, harmful journalism about Demi and the pregnancies at Edna Mahan are absolutely, you know, within line with the history, the transphobia that we're seeing in mainstream media, just like challenging the reality of trans existence in this country. And so they go hand in hand. And it, absolutely follows that, you know, like journalism that paints Demi as an aggressor, as like a violent, um, as a violent person who is a threat to cisgender women behind bars. It absolutely follows that people are going to see that article and then have those same assumptions about trans and gender nonconforming people, you know, in the streets and in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And so, you know, like you said, it, the transphobia and the bigotry that was, um, leveled at Demi absolutely has a a harmful impact on trans people outside of prisons and jails as well. All right, Adam Rhodes, anything that I haven't asked you that you feel is critical to get out about this story or this issue? Yeah, I think there's one particular passage that is really um, illuminating about, I think, what the state of this issue is, is that oftentimes prison officials will paint the humane treatment of trans people, particularly trans women, as a threat to the safety of other people in prisons. And, you know, number one, I think the biggest threat to people in prisons is prison officials and the prison system in general. But, you know, respecting trans people and making sure that they are free from sexual assault, from mental anguish, from physical abuse is not a threat to other people's safety. You know, like the more people that are safe, the more just the system is. Adam Rhodes, thanks so much for your work, for the article, and for coming on the show. We hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>